This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. Spring is here in Montana. We just got a solid 20 plus inches of snow in town, in Bozeman, uh, which is a lot, but everybody seems to forget that every year in March and April, we get a big snowstorm, and every year people seem surprised when it happens. But I will give it to them that that recent storm was pretty significant for the valley floor. That is a lot of snow that is sticking around and it's definitely gonna have an impact on wintering wildlife. In fact, that's our topic for the deeper dive this week. So that'll be in the second half of this episode. Unfortunately, there's no fishing corner this week. I think partly due to the fact that there's 20 inches of snow on the ground. And also Michael's just been dreaming about lake fishing and he's been working on his boat. So hopefully next week we'll have another fishing corner. So we'll just jump straight into some news. Last week, President Biden established two different national monuments, one in Texas and another in Nevada, along with creating a marine sanctuary around some Pacific remote islands. National monuments are a tool used by U.S. presidents to protect naturally, culturally, and historically significant lands. The Antiquities Act in 1906 gave presidents the authority to designate federal land as monuments, usually protecting them in their current state. Since the passing of the Antiquities Act, 16 of the 18 presidents have established at least one national monument. Sometimes people confuse national monuments with national parks, but they are very different. National monuments, for the most part, don't prohibit any of the current land uses. Rather, they just keep that land in its current state, not allowing for future development. The Avikwame National Monument, I probably said that wrong, uh, but the new one in southern Nevada is around 500,000 acres and it is managed by the Bureau of Land Management and it will continue to be managed by the BLM after this designation. So hunting will still be allowed, existing water catchments and infrastructure can continue to be maintained and upgraded. Existing roads, pipelines and transmission lines will still stay in place. Uh, but what it does change is stopping a proposed solar and wind energy development for that area. The Kastner Range in Texas, it's a little different. It's 7,000 acres owned by the U.S. Army as part of Fort Bliss, and for years it had been used as a firing range, but has sat unused since 1966. So it has been closed down since then due to a significant amount of unexploded ordnance. With this new designation as a monument, it will eventually be open to the public, but the Army said it is gonna take a significant amount of years to clean up all of the munitions. In Washington, the effort to transplant grizzly bears into the Northern Cascades is moving forward again. The U.S. Fish Wildlife Service has been drafting an environmental impact statement with a plan of reintroducing grizzly bears, but the Trump administration had shut it down in 2020. It has been a back and forth and will likely continue to be a back and forth of whether or not they'll do this. But the newest report is that it is back on the table with a plan to release the draft environmental impact statement by June and the possibility of having a final statement by spring 2024. And of course, whenever it comes to large predators, emotions run high on both sides. Many critics claim that introducing grizzlies will be a significant threat to humans humans, wildlife, and livestock, while proponents claim that there's strong public support and plenty of habitat with the North Cascades National Park, along with millions of acres of designated wilderness. If the plan moves forward, initially it sounds like the proposal will be to introduce three to seven grizzlies with the goal of slowly growing the population and an ultimate goal of 200 bears within 60 to 100 years. I should also note that there is currently a small population of grizzly bears that does exist in Northeast Washington, but establishing them in the North Cascades would be a significant distance away from that population. Like I said, I'm sure this will be a back and forth for a long time, but it will be interesting to watch how it plays out over the next few years. Keeping with the grizzly bear theme, three different bills have been introduced before Congress to delist both grizzlies and wolves from the endangered species list. The first bill would delist wolves nationwide, the second bill would delist grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, and the third would delist grizzly bears in the northern continental divide ecosystem, which is essentially the Glacier National Park area. 
This again is one of those back and forth things that never seems to end with large predators. None of these bills are likely to pass the Senate, but there is a possibility that supporters could try to attach this as a rider on a must pass piece of legislation. An interesting study was recently presented at the annual Wildlife Society Conference by biologist Hunter Prude. They were trying to answer the question as whether or not artificial water sources like stock tanks, wildlife catchments, and guzzlers were aiding in mountain lion predation on wildlife. For this study, they were primarily looking at mountain lions predating on mule deer in New Mexico and Arizona. They had 82 lions collared and analyzed over 1,500 ungulate kills. And what they found was that while some kills did occur next to artificial water, the vast majority did not happen in close proximity to these water sources. A lot of the kills were around 500 to 2,500 meters from water sources, but for the most part, the lions were not using the drinker itself as the ambush site. They did note that one of the drinker sites did have several instances of predation, but it was likely due to a big juniper tree close by, giving the lion hiding cover, making ambush easier. It's kind of interesting. I definitely thought that these concentrated water sources would serve as a major predation site, but it sounds like as long as there's not too much cover close by, it won't change the dynamics too much. For the deeper dive this week, it's just Randy and I, and we're talking about the recent weather received and what it means for wintering wildlife. Well, Bozeman had a lot of snow in the last week. Your definition <laughs> of a lot is pretty modest because I, I was going to call it tons of snow. Yeah, but it definitely has us thinking about wintering wildlife and what this is doing to them. Yeah. I mean, it's, around Bozeman is significant, but then across the western United States too, there's just record snowfall all over the place. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, we're getting the reports from everywhere, right? Uh, emergency feeding in Utah, emergency feeding in Idaho. Uh, Wyoming has their feeding for elk, uh, the elk feeding program regardless, but yeah, it's in yeah. full force. And tag cuts in Wyoming, tag cuts in Colorado. Yeah. It's, but you know, it is just part of, life in the Rockies. And I, and I don't mean to discount it by saying that, but these animals have been going through this for long, long before right. we were here as humans. Yeah. And the downside is human impact, human development complicates their ability to deal with it now because a lot of their former habitat that helped them get through this stuff are where we have our houses and our roads and our cities and our, you know, insert whatever human development there right yeah for sure um it's pretty wild and that's what i was looking at the the snow tell sites the usda snow tell you can look at it they have an interactive map that shows you <coughs> all the uh different sites and um what percent of average snowpack or snow water equivalent is what they yeah they use the metric but it's pretty interesting if you look across like basically the rockies it's a lot of over 150% of average right now really? in a lot of areas, which is just insane. And it's not necessarily an indicator for all of the areas because the right. val the valleys don't <laughs> always correlate exactly with a lot of these sites that are on tops of mountains, but yeah. in general, it gives you a pretty good indication. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's stuff in Arizona that's like 600%. Really? Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> Gotta love it because Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, southern Utah, they've been in such a drought for so long. And it started breaking last summer with the monsoons, mm -hmm. and now they're having all this moisture. Maybe that's one, <laughs> if you want to call it a, a silver lining in a dark right. cloud, is some states benefit from all this winter moisture. Yeah. Even though it's really having a, a hard impact on the alpine areas of the Rockies. 
Yeah, for sure. That's like one th- interesting aspect of it with the, with the bad often comes good in some other form. Uh, so we'll probably have longer running more, more seasonal streams flowing now, you know, filling up the aquifers, getting better moisture, but, uh, yeah, like there's stuff in Wyoming. There's some interesting studies going on in Wyoming that they're losing a ton of animals right now. Yeah. And that's like of the collared ones that they know about. And obviously mortalities and, you know, that can be extrapolated across even more herds, but definitely over 50% of adults in a few studies I saw both pronghorn and mule deer. And then, uh, almost all fawns in a few of the studies have, have died. died this winter. So, yeah. And, and it's not over. I mean, that's the thing. Like we got this huge dump of snow just in the last week and yeah. uh yeah and it's interesting because it's i like to make fun of people because we get big snowfalls every spring right but we were talking about this earlier how you know usually it's not 20 inches at one time in the valley floor and then it sticks around you know it might right. snow a bunch but then it's usually melting off pretty quick yeah. so it's definitely gonna have a an impact yep. um but yeah i think one of the interesting aspects of this, what you brought up earlier, is, is looking into how different states uh, deal with it. Like, how do right. they manage, like, what management changes do they do, do they implement because of these winters? Yeah. And, and so you mentioned the feeding, which is uh, one of the things that certain states, some states have this, like, they will feed regardless. Yep. And then other states implement emergency feeding. And then yep. some states just absolutely do not do it. And they let right. nature take its course. Yeah. And you know, the latter is Montana. We right. don't, we don't feed, we don't have feed grounds. We it's, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, a true Darwinian type existence of, yeah. You know. Well, yeah. It's in, well, it's interesting too, because if you look at most every Western state, it's like fish and game website, it almost unanimously discourages feeding of wildlife. And it's, right. uh, in most states, it's actually <clears throat> illegal for the public to feed wildlife because it, adds all sorts of complications and concentrates them, Yep, you know, can promote disease or in higher traffic areas, more likely to get hit by cars um, and so forth. But that being said, like Utah had a really interesting example of like when they implement emergency feeding, like it was like basically a cost benefit analysis. Are we going to do more good than harm by Hmm. doing this emergency feeding? And, uh, but that's like one of the states where it's interesting, where I'm pretty sure it's not illegal for, people to feed wildlife right. there's definitely some loopholes where the public does feed wildlife but, but they, they, they discourage it <clears throat> but, i was gonna say yeah. i would bet they probably discourage it's, it even if it's not illegal for sure but uh yeah. yeah and then you get states like wyoming where you know when you look at their feed grounds for elk they've got 22 or and i think 22 and then they got jackson yeah which so is 22 state one. managed and then the fish wildlife <coughs> service manages the elk refuge and jackson. they do that even in good winters, if you you know the low snow winters, right. because they're trying to keep the elk off private ag grounds. Yep, uh, and they started that a long time ago. Once uh, you know Wyoming had such a migratory herd of elk, and a lot of those migration mm-hmm. corridors get cut off, they start stacking up on private lands. Well, the game and fish said, "Well, we're going to start doing feed grounds to pull them off the private lands." Right. And that comes with its whole litany, you know, a long list of controversies and, and valid concerns. Right. But Wyoming is one of those places where it's not just because it's a hard winter that they have feed grounds this year. They have re- feed grounds every year. Yeah. And so, that's Wyoming's uh, a super interesting 
example because they've sustained these high numbers of elk for so long now that they've really put themselves in a predicament because if they were go if they were to go back to a natural state mm-hmm. a lot of elk would die and or, oh, yeah. and then also a lot of conflict would occur too because they'd be going to like you said the private land and so forth and so yeah. i feel like they've just kind of gone down this path and they're you know they're in a predicament and i know there's been a lot of talk about phasing it out in certain areas and trying to come up with plans for like doing it slow so it's not like a huge die-off all at once or however they're going to do it. But the big concern in Wyoming, from what I understand, is chronic wasting disease. Yeah. And so the big worry is if we continue to concentrate all these elk at these feed grounds, eventually disease could end up taking them out regardless. Right. And so it's not even a debate about whether it's like natural or unnatural. It's just like if we keep doing this, it could lead to unintended consequences and kill yeah. more elk regardless right so that's the big worry there yeah in wyoming does uh, cwd hasn't been discovered on their feed grounds yet but brucellosis has yeah and so they have done studies brucellosis prevalence on the feed grounds compared to brucellosis prevalence where the in herds that don't have feed grounds it's a factor of many x higher on the feed grounds. so i don't think it's unreasonable to extrapolate that that could be the same outcome in a transmitted disease the way that right. chronic wasting disease is. So it's really, really complicated. Yeah. Uh, now, and that's, that was, uh, I was just thinking of the Wyoming example, Colorado also Im- implemented feeding this year and it was with the goal of reducing landowner conflicts, you know, livestock yep. producer conflicts too. So I'm not saying it's necessarily they're going down the same path. It might just be just this year right. in a localized area. but <clears throat> Yeah, uh, I was talking to one of their biologists. Colorado kind of has a, a checklist they go through to determine when and if and when and where they would do supplemental feeding. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a tough one because, like, I definitely gravitate towards liking natural systems that function on their own. But a prime example of where we benefited is, I mean, I got to film you on an elk hunt last year in Wyoming, and mm-hmm. there wouldn't have been that many elk around if there wasn't winter feeding, you no. know? Like, yeah. And if, you know, that part of Wyoming, if we want to go pull the town of Jackson and uproot it and say, oh, let's let these elk continue to migrate down the Snake River corridor or out the Green River, you know, out into the Red Desert, well... That would that that would help a lot, but I don't think anyone is going to pull the town of Jackson out of that valley, right? On behalf of letting elk migrate. Well, and, that yeah, and I don't think that America's energy requirements are going to allow us to get rid of all the oil and gas infrastructure from Pinedale to Daniel to Rock Springs. Yeah. So those are things we got to deal with, unless someone says, "Oh yeah, we'll get rid of those on behalf of elk and other migrating wildlife." So we. <laughs> Those are other realities that enter the equation. Right. There's just enough development around that you can't, uh, we can't let things just take their natural course and expect right. it to be what it used to be. You right. know, we can't have 200 years ago type, <laughs> you know. It'd be nice. But, I mean, it'd be nice if we could have all that and still have the natural setting. Right. But it, it it's not there. And so... For, for me, when I see this, you know, you and I were sharing those articles about Colorado and Northwest Colorado. They're going to cut deer tags 40 to 50%. Right. We, we got the tentative quotas from Wyoming because they're having all their public meetings right now, and they're cutting pronghorn tags 50%. 
getting rid of most of the doe tags for pronghorn, most of the doe tags for deer. Uh, you look at that and it's like, oh man, this is painful. And it is painful, but for me, what it emphasizes, and we say this time and again, how important habitat is. Right. Higher, the higher the quality of the habitat, the, the less impact winter has, the less impact predation has, but also when you have these terrible winters, the quicker the rebound and the more robust and healthy that population, the more resilient it is to these type of cycles. For sure. And I think one of the things we're seeing, this is, to me, this is like the indicator of, hey, our habitat could use some improvement. When are, when are we as hunters going to start focusing on habitat and habitat quality, productivity of these lands? Right. Or are we just going to say, no, let's go feed them alfalfa pellets? <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. It's kind of a band-aid on the on the bigger issue right. uh, when you're when you're doing things like that. Yeah. Um as a guy who's but, just been to an ER, putting pellets on the ground is like triage for arm injuries, right? It's like going to the ER. Right. Doing things like long-term habitat. That's like when your doctor says, you know, diet, exercise, you know, good sleep. That's what the long-term habitat one one's a short-term emergency approach yeah you get your gastric bypass or you know just like, <laughs> you know, take some pills you get some injections you can yeah just and, like the, <clears throat> quickly solve these issues right <laughs> so i i just hope that when winners like this come along that people are are focused on the value of highly productive habitat going back to what you were talking about just like how the state the other management change that states make is tag allocation right. and so um, like you said, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, they all have announced that there will be changes to quotas for yep. the 20, the 2023, uh, hunting season. Whereas states like Montana, again, we are, we have our two year season setting and there's, there's quota ranges that they can adjust year right. to year, but they can't make drastic changes no. to the thing. No. And so I know that I feel like you're probably somewhat critical of that, which I totally understand. But I think uh, to to defend FWP a little bit, I think that there is sometimes the problem as far as it goes biologically kind of takes care of itself because when there's less animals on the landscape, yeah, we're going to harvest less, but we're not going to, at least history has shown that we're probably not going to wipe them out. Right. And so, and that was, um, I talked about this earlier, but the, the idea of additive versus compensatory harvest. Yep. And so the whole, the idea of that is compensatory means that you're killing a surplus of animals that would have otherwise died in the winter anyway. And so that's like been very true in game birds, for instance, like if you, you know, you can kill, you almost can't kill too many game birds. you know, if you have some decent regulations, obviously. Yeah. Um, it, it is possible to over harvest. Right, we, we right. know that from the market hunting area era, yeah. but, uh, anyway, so game birds, it, it applies, but then things like a moose is where you can definitely have a significant impact on a population with hunting. Yep. But then deer and elk fall in this like weird little middle ground where, you know, if some of them die, like in the winter, then we're not going to harvest as many next year, but we're not going to you know, hopefully not going to hurt the population that bad. Right. And so to me, some of these regulation changes are almost a, 
a hunter satisfaction change mm-hmm. because hunters are going to be upset next year because there are going to be less animals out there. Oh yeah. But for sure. with the current regulations that we have, we won't wipe them out. No. So no. just hope. to, just to put it in perspective, it's not a complete biological thing, but it is a, it's definitely a hunter satisfaction. Yeah. I uh, think, And seeing how each state responds, I think, is a little bit of a function of the luxury they have of the quality and quantity of habitat they have. So Montana, we've got a lot of really, really good quality habitat. We have two-thirds of our private, of our state is private land. Yeah, which serves as a sanctuary, too. Yeah. So that's that's another aspect of that. So we have that luxury that some other states don't have. Some other states are intensely developed in areas where there is winter range. I I think of Utah, how much of their winter range is developed. Colorado, how much of their winter range is developed. We don't have nearly the invasive species problems of cheatgrass that Idaho, northern Nevada have. Yeah. So they've lost tons of their winter range and they get a hard winter like this. They, they don't have the quality winter range. We don't have the invasive species of non-native horses that have went unmanaged for decades and decades that Northwest Colorado is dealing with. Right. And if you look at the map of Northwest Colorado, that area that's getting adjusted for tag numbers, compare, compare that to your snowtail map and there's nothing remarkable about it. it their, their snow hasn't been any more above average than the rest of the state. Mm-hmm. But if you look at a map of where their horse populations are at the highest densities, it's almost an exact overlap of those units that are being closed. I'm not saying that is the only reason, but there's definitely a correlation to how non-native species, both plant species and, and animal species, can impact the ability for our native populations and native herds to get through these kind of winters that they previously could 100 years ago or 300 years ago so yeah and i think that's a a great point because i think so often we get attracted to the shiny objects of things that you know we can change like tag numbers or Mm -hmm. we yeah like feeding wildlife or whatever but yeah you're just ignoring the the larger problem of of having quality winter range and good habitat yeah. And like, that's that, you know, that's like the ultimate solution yeah. is if you have good, <clears throat> good habitat for the wildlife to live, like they can make it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we, as we mentioned before too, society is just <laughs> not, not going to allow that in some places. So yeah. we definitely get in a predicament. <clears throat> but. Well, I wish I could say that we we're going to get a reprieve, but I just came in and it snowed another three or four inches this morning. Well, yeah. since whatever it it wasn't snowing when I went to bed last night. Right. But we had three or four more inches, and we're supposed to get more snow tomorrow. Yeah. It, it's like, when's it going to end? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough to see. But, I mean, it's not yeah. the first time, and it's not the last time it'll happen. No. It, we have these big die-offs, and yeah. luckily, in the vast majority of places, you know, in recent wildlife management times, we have not uh, lost any populations of you know deer or elk right so like uh, you know on the on the bright side it's like yeah is the hunting going to be less good next Mm. year and well and then you know for mature if you're like after a mature buck or bull yeah there's gonna be super low recruitment this winter so yeah you know five six years from now that age class is just missing right so yeah it's gonna have an impact but they will come back like we luckily we have like uh 
you know, the states are pretty good at their jobs in the scheme of things. Like we, we, we obviously get nitpicky because mm-hmm. we got to complain about something, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we have it pretty dang good and yeah. they are going to, they'll come back. Yeah. Um, and if there is a, you know, I think one of the benefits and we started touching on this with states that are really impacted by drought more so than, you know, some of the Alpine areas we're talking Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada. They really had a hard drought going for the last 25 years, specifically the previous four years. And then 2022, they get a huge moisture year. Good winter rains, good monsoon. Winter of 2023, good moisture. So those states that have been cutting deer and pronghorn tags and cutting them and cutting them and restricting and restricting, history has shown that those states will crank that back up as, right. as quick as you throw some water on those landscapes, the, the elk, the deer, especially deer and pronghorn numbers respond remarkably. And to the credit of those states, they've always cranked it back up once the drought kind of goes away and they get this yep. moisture. So, you know, as much as we might be bearing some negative impacts of it in Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Colorado, there's going to be some benefits to all this moisture in, in some of these other states. Right. Yeah. Like you, a positive aspect for you and Matthew is you got Arizona elk <laughs> tags this year. They probably, yeah. probably have some great antler growth. Hopefully. Yeah. You Good know, spring if, moisture. If, if so you, that could be, a, you know, another silver lining. It, it, it could be. You know, if you're going to draw a tag every six or seven years there, you may as well luck out and draw it in a high moisture year. So yeah. I guess we'll see. But um, I, I, I want to. I always try to use these kind of events and these cycles, just to go back to what I said to illustrate how, if nothing else, think about why it's so so dramatic right now. And the reason it is so dramatic is because we have ignored a lot of our habitat issues, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, but we can't continue to do that. Human development, human encroachment is impacting these habitat issues in so many ways. Yeah. And we got to start putting more into habitat, more into habitat, so that we don't have such huge fluctuations when we do have weather events in that the rebounds are quicker and better. And you, how many times have you heard me say, Marcus, if we want to improve our odds of drawing a tag by 30%, Make the habitat 30% more productive because there will be 30% more right. wildlife out there for us to have tags for. Yeah. So. Well, that's a good thought to end the discussion on, I think. <laughs> All right. Let's, yeah. go, let's go get our shovels and our snowblowers. Right. All right. Well, thanks for watching or listening. <laughs>